Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. Dun dun. My name's Ben. Dun dun. And my name's Sarah. Dun dun. I don't know why we're making the noises. Because it's Halloween! Thank you for listening to us today, everybody. Happy Halloween! Not actually Halloween. Well, Almost. It's our Halloween episode. It's our episode that will be out by the time it's Halloween. Our most recent episode as of Halloween. Hey, we have a new patron. That's right. Our new patron is Lana Corona. Thanks, Lana. Thank you. And if you want to be like Lana and help support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Um, Lana is signing up Right at the most perfect time, Mm -hmm. because our spooky Halloween content for this month is going to be coming out, and this is extra special stuff that is available to patrons of all levels. The spooky content would be our special bonus episode on HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, which, you know, plays a, a role in, like, the rest of the United States history, but has a particular role in Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, during the 50s and 60s. It's the spookiest house committee. It is terrifying. <laughs> um, and then there's going to be... I feel weird calling it an audiobook because it's like just a short story. Audio adaptation? Audio adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft short story, The Music of Eric Zahn. So that's that- coming out for, yeah, the end of October here. Uh, just in time for Halloween. So yeah, the smart move is to join up with the Patreon right before the end of October so that you get all of that juicy, good, bonus October content. Right away, right to your inbox. That's right. So what are we watching today, Ben? Well, today, Sarah, for our Halloween episode, we are heading back to Safe Waters. We are... I feel like we should be going into Unsafe Waters for Halloween. No, I want to make sure we watch a movie that's going to, like, go on the list and rank (laughs) and, like... So we are headed back to Universal International for another horror monster movie. Specifically, we're here for a sequel. It's Revenge of the Creature, the 1955 sequel to 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. Now, you say revenge. Mm -hmm. I've also seen this... As Return of the Creature. No, it's it's Revenge of the Creature. Return of the Creature was a working title. Oh. After they rejected the original working title of Return of the Creature of the Black Lagoon. Okay. That's a little... <laughs> you know, they're little... hitting all those SEO points, but it's a little wordy. Yes. Uh, since nobody cared about SEO in 1955... <laughs> They have gone with a little more generic Revenge of the Creature. Not as generic as Edward's Bride of the Monster, but still in that ballpark. So Creature from the Black Lagoon was just a year before, but in Scream Scene time, it feels like it was a long time ago. Not 
too long ago. So you're right, it's 1954, but we covered it in episode 168, which is only nine episodes ago. Oh, wow. Really? But that is like nine weeks. Right, which in 2020 is like nine... Months. Yeah, exactly. Like, you could have, like, raised a creature from the dead by now. We ranked it at number 27. Okay, so in the top 30. Yeah, it's a pretty good showing. Yeah, yeah. So if people didn't catch that episode, or, like me, can't remember anything that happened longer ago than, say, yesterday, why don't you catch us up? (laughs) Deep in the Amazon rainforest, a fossil of a large webbed hand is found, and it sparks an expedition to find the rest of the fossil. The expedition team includes Dr. David Reed, a marine biologist who is studying fish and has claims that by studying fish's past, we can learn about our future, about adapting to space travel and shit. Yeah, if we know how fishes survive underwater, we can understand how humans survive in space. That's completely logical, Sarah. Absolutely. Also on the expedition is Dr. Reed's fiance Kay, who is an assistant at the Institute putting on the expedition. There's other people as well, but I'm not talking about them. Their excavation for this fossil leads them to the Black Lagoon and the living fossil, Gilman. Mm-hmm. Not extinct, but alive. First, they try to catch him by using the chemical rhodonone, which kind of makes like fish like sleepy and float to the surface. Through the chemical rhodonone, they are able to capture Gilman, but... He escapes. So the expedition's like, okay, well, let's wrap up and head home. But Gilman traps them in the Black Lagoon by blocking the entrance and sabotages any attempts to remove that blockage. In the midst of this, Gilman kidnaps Kay and takes her to an underwater grotto. During Kay's rescue, Gilman is shot and maybe killed? The last we see of him is um, sinking into the lagoon and maybe swimming. The end? (laughs) During that episode, episode 168, we talk a lot about the design of the creature coming from the monk fish Mm -hmm. um, and medieval portraits of said fish. Yes. And one thing that we we really liked about the the movie is the underwater scenes um, and the way that they were able to build tension while filming underwater with the man in the suit not having any ability to breathe underwater. Or see. Or see. It is very, very impressive. Yeah. The idea for Creature from the Black Lagoon originated with this guy, William Allen. He had heard from a, like, native of Brazil at, like, a cast party or something about how there was this gill man in the Amazon River, the person telling the story, like, swore up and down this was absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And so Alan, like, always wanted to make a movie about this character and kind of based the story for Creature from the Black Lagoon on, like, the first half of King Kong, where they go to an exotic place, there's a big monster. And They're the, going to sacrifice a lady. Yeah, the monster wants to bone down with the lead lady because Gilman's primary motivation in Kidnapping Kay is... Fish babies. Yeah. Let's make some fish fry. Yeah. The film was directed by Jack Arnold, who was kind of like an up-and-coming 
guy at Universal. He had done um, It Came From Outer Space. Yeah, that's right. And like It Came From Outer Space, Creature From the Black Lagoon was shot in 3D. Which was very impressive with the fact that they're filming underwater. Yes, in 3D, underwater. In black and white, though. No um, Technicolor. That's right. This isn't House of Wax. Yeah. Listen, you can't just keep adding on difficulties, you know? You say that, and yet Hollywood finds a way. Sure. So, Creature from the Black Lagoon was a really big hit. Uh, It grossed $1.3 million when it came out in March of 1954. Uh, Hence why we are here talking about a sequel. Yes. One thing that we also talked about in that episode was how it's unique that Gilman is coming out in the 50s, mm-hmm. yet he's always lumped in with the classic, like, 1930s monsters, mm-hmm. and how it's unique that he is... He's just a living fossil. There's no glands. There's right. no atomic energy. He's just there. And I think that's part of the reason why he fits in with the classic universal monster lineup of, like, Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, the wolfman... Yeah. You know, because he's just a monster from... Uh, the Black Lagoon. Right, from like <laughs> this, you know, unexplored corner of the world. Yeah, rather than being like the result of radioactive, you know, energy or whatever, like in a more 50s vein. Yeah, he's not like an alien or a mutation or anything. He's just a monster. And like everything with him going after the girl and everything is very traditional. I mean... Like I said, they they used King Kong very purposefully as a skeleton. And so when making the sequel, it was very natural to use the second half of King Kong as the basis. And indeed, this had kind of already been the plan and why the first movie ended with a little bit of a question as to whether the creature was dead or not. I mean, they shoot him full of bullets And then his body lifelessly, like, sinks to the bottom of the lagoon. But the movie has a lot more, but maybe he's still alive down there somewhere, who can tell, in its ending than, like, the old 40s Universal monster movies. Like, the castle blows up. Yeah, and, like, the fucking, you know, monster burns up to cinders in front of your eyes. (laughs) And then, like, in the next movie, they're like, oh, we found him buried under the ashes. And we've brought him back to life with a lightning bolt. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Right? So the door was left open for a sequel very purposefully, and with the idea that that sequel would follow the second half of the King Kong narrative where the monster comes to civilization. The first film had been written from Alan's story treatment by Harry Essex and Arthur Ross, but for the sequel, Alan's story was expanded to screenplay by Martin Berkeley. See, in 1953, Alan had testified before HUAC, Mm. uh, admitting to having been in the Communist Party of the United States from 1946 to 1949 and naming names. Berkeley had also been brought before HUAC after having been outed by another screenwriter, Richard Collins. Collins had also turned in his ex-wife, Dorothy Comingore. Oof. Berkeley, uh, when brought before HUAC initially tried to deny having been a communist, but, like, really cracked. Like, really cracked under the pressure. 
Uh, he admitted to having been a member of the party uh, up until 1943. He did testify that there was no way a screenwriter could ever put communist propaganda into a script without producers and executives spotting it. Um, so the entire, like, premise of HUAC's investigation into Hollywood was invalid. Mm-hmm. However, he did also give 161 names to the committee, many later found to be inaccurate, but they were the most names any one witness gave. Uh, he became known as HUAC's number one friendly witness. Wow. He was so forthcoming with names that, like, people on the committee even told him, like, hey, don't name that many. You're just going to get yourself into trouble. <laughs> When the witch hunters themselves are saying, hey, like you're not we're, gonna, we're good. You're not going to have any friends left. No one's going to hire you, buddy. Like, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. He just like sang like a canary, like just started reading the phone book to them. So after that, uh, you know, Alan and Berkeley were fellow snitches. So Alan brought him on to write this movie. <laughs> You know, you meet the same people going to Walt Disney's anti-communist meetings. <laughs> For more about Walt Disney's anti-communist meetings, see our upcoming special episode on HUAC. Oh, Disney. So, uh, Jack Arnold returns to direct uh, from the first movie. This is his next picture after Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like, he went from that to this. And this movie, rather than being shot, you know, out at a lagoon, uh, was shot primarily at Marineland of Florida. Okay. It's not that the movie's, like, set at Marineland, but it basically is set at Marineland. Okay. Like the original film, it was shot in 3D using a brand new 3D camera that was developed by the film's cinematographer, Charles S. Wellborn. So the trick to this 3D camera is that it could float evenly in water. Oh, shit. So you could have it be at the surface of the water floating, and it wouldn't bob in the water. It would stay, like, level. Wow, Um, how did he come up with that? uh, That's really impressive. Yeah, that's gyroscopes is how you do that. Yeah. Um, But also, the camera could rise and sink in the water using compressed air pumps, as well as move forward and back using the same compressed air system. So, so he made a submarine. Yeah, he made like a little remote control camera submarine is what he did. He made a made. drone. He made a drone. He made a water drone. Yeah. A 3D water drone. Damn. Yeah. yeah. Once more, scenes of the Gill Man swimming would utilize the skills of underwater stuntman Rico Browning. Uh, in the first film, the Gill Man suit was airtight since the amphibious creature would not give off air bubbles because he's processing bubbles through, you know. Gills. Right. Uh, This meant that Browning could only shoot underwater for about five minutes at a time, at most. In the sequel, this realism has been compromised in order to allow a hose that Browning could have in his mouth that was attached to an air supply built into the suit so that he could breathe and shoot for longer, but does result in air bubbles rising from the creature in this version. I am okay with this, because it means a little bit more safety for him. Ben Chapman, who played the on-land version of the creature in the first film, declined to return. Uh, Maybe it has something to do with that machete he almost took to the head, remember? (laughs) So he was replaced by... He was fine. Yes, he was. (laughs) He was replaced by stuntman Tom Hennessy. For this second film, the suit's head was redesigned. 
with bulging fish-like eyes that kind of like bubble out from the head instead of being more sunken in like they were in the first movie. And this was done so that goggle lenses could be concealed uh, as part of the eyes so that the performers could actually look out of the mask this time rather than be completely blind. Again, an adaptation of the suit for better safety. Right. Uh, It doesn't look as good. Listen, Ben, you gotta, you know. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There were also still accidents. Um, At one point, Hennessy had to jump into the water carrying stuntwoman Ginger Stanley. Um, You know, and then they would go to underwater footage of Rico Browning swimming, right? But, like, they have to get... Into the water into first. The, so they got to get Hennessy jumping in. So he's carrying the stunt woman. He jumps in, but a freak current pulled them both down underwater. Hennessy released Stanley so that she could swim to the surface. She was an experienced stunt swimmer who doubled for the lead actresses in this movie and the original movie. So she swam to safety. But Hennessy was wearing the dry land version of the costume. Which is heavier. Well, it also isn't watertight and also doesn't have the air supply oh fuck Uh, so it actually became waterlogged which meant it became too heavy to move at all and so he just kind of sank to the bottom uh oh my god and was swept away by the current uh he was rescued by two local boys who had been watching the shooting from a nearby boat like and rode their fishing boat out to like watch them shoot the movie uh, and and dived in and pulled him up. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So almost none of the main cast of the original return, or their characters. Uh, it's almost completely new people. Our new male lead is played by actor John Agar, and he was born in Chicago in 1921. He moved to L.A. after his father's death in 1942. In World War II, he was a pilot... And after the war, he married former child actress Shirley Temple. Oh, shit. Yeah, she had been a classmate of his younger sister. He was 26, she was 17. Um, And he was, because she was like friends with his younger sister, he agreed to escort her to a party that her boss, David O. Selznick, was throwing. Uh, And then they fell in love and what, blah, blah, and got married. So he became her first husband. (laughs) First. (laughs) Yeah. David O. Selznick, her boss, then signed Agar to a five-year acting contract and signed him up for acting lessons um, (laughs) under the plan that then he could play her love interest in her movies. Yeah, because, have kind of a bogey and Bacall sort well, of thing. Yeah, and also because she had been this child actress who was associated with being like so sweet and innocent. This would help maintain some of that image because who her love interest is actually her husband. Husband, yeah, exactly. As she was transitioning to more adult roles that would be romantic roles. Yeah. So he first appeared as Shirley Temple's love interest in the 1948 John Ford Western Fort Apache, which stars John Wayne and Henry Fonda. Agar made more movies with Temple, um, which were all flops. Oh, no. Uh, he actually had better on-screen chemistry as John Wayne's sidekick. Uh, <laughs> so he ended up having more success 
appearing as like the youthful romantic lead in John Wayne movies because even by the late 40s Wayne was like a little old to yeah. be the romantic lead um so he appears as like the young man in uh she wore a yellow ribbon sands of iwo jima stuff like that in 1948 he had a daughter with temple but in 1950 they divorced um partially due to agar's drinking problem oh and so agar saw very little of temple or his daughter after the divorce he was arrested four times for drunk driving between 1950 and 1960. He married his second wife, model Loretta Combs, in 1951. But they had to wait an hour because um, officials at the ceremony considered Agar too drunk to legally sign the paperwork. Oh, boy. So they had to wait an hour for him to sober up a bit before he was considered, like, legally fit to sign a contract. Uh, Combs and Agar had two sons and remained married together for the rest of their lives. Uh, she passed away in 2000, he in 2002. Agar did have a tough time getting work after his divorce from Shirley Temple. Sure. Something about breaking the heart of America's sweetheart just wasn't a great look for him. Uh, so for the early part of the 1950s, he made do on roles that John Wayne would get him as favors. <laughs> I mean, sure. In 1954, he signed a seven-year contract with Universal International, and his first film under that contract was Revenge of the Creature. So he's pretty invested. In this movie being successful? Yes. Yeah. His co-star, the female romantic lead of this movie, is actress Lori Nelson, who was born Dixie K. Nelson in 1933, which means that she's 22 in this film while he's 34. Nelson had been a pageant contestant and model growing up as like a child and a teen, um, in addition to appearing in amateur theater. In 1950, at age 17, she was signed to Universal after a talent scout saw one of her plays. By the time she made this movie, she had made nine films with Universal, mostly westerns, and she was dating fellow young actor Tab Hunter in a relationship which was highly publicized in all the tabloids and was also, in fact, a screen for his relationship with figure skater Ronald Robertson. The one returning character and actor from the original film is Nestor Paiva, who plays Lucas, the boat captain, although Paiva would achieve his greatest recognition when he started appearing as the innkeeper on Disney's Zorro television show starting in 1957. But the actor who most modern audiences will notice when watching this movie appears in an uncredited role as a lab assistant. Okay. And that's Clint Eastwood. What? Yes. No. Clint Eastwood. What the fuck? Clint Eastwood was born in 1930. <laughs> he was expelled from Piedmont High School for burning an effigy of a school official on the school lawn and transferred to Oakland Technical High School, which he did not graduate from as he was too busy, quote, having fun somewhere else, unquote. In 1950, he was drafted into the U.S. Army when the Korean War started. 
However, he never actually served combat, as he was romancing the daughter of an officer stationed at Fort Ord, and so was posted as the lifeguard at Fort Ord for the duration of his military service. While he was working as a lifeguard at Fort Ord, he was spotted by Chuck Hill, uh, who was stationed there as well, but had worked in Hollywood previously. He convinced Eastwood to come with him to L.A. to get a screen test at Universal, where Hill knew director of photography Irving Glassberg, who shot The Strange Door and The Black Castle. Glassberg then got Eastwood an audition with director Arthur Lubin, most famous for directing um, most of Abbott and Costello's Universal films, uh, but he also helmed the 1943 Phantom of the Opera and 1946's The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. Lubin liked Eastwood's look. It's a good look. Uh, He thought he was, you know, good, handsome, tall, he's 6'3", looked good, even though Eastwood could not act in the slightest. (laughs) Uh, Didn't know where to stand, didn't know where to look, didn't know how to say words. Um, Always was talking through his teeth. So, Lubin signed him to a seven-year contract at Universal and also acting lessons. Revenge of the Creature is his first acting job. Oh my Like, not just his first movie... But his first acting, acting job. job. Period. Wow. Yep. Interesting. And he's a lab assistant. Yep. At, uh, let's see, I guess he would be 25 in this movie. <laughs> the editing for this film is by two-time Oscar winner Paul Weatherwax, um, who also edited It Came From Outer Space and won his Oscars for The Naked City in 1948 and Around the World in 80 Days in 1957. Wow, that must have been quite an editing job. 80 days of shooting. (laughs) Oh, boy. So, Revenge of the Creature was released on May 13th, 1955. It was the only 3D movie released in 1955, and the final 3D movie of the 1950s, uh, ending the first 3D movie craze. Let's hope that they uh, don't go out with a whimper. Mm. It was released as a double feature, with Universal's Cult of the Cobra, which we will be watching next week for our (laughs) next episode. Great. Lovely. Yeah, so so this is the A movie on the bill. (laughs) Reviews at the time were very dismissive, but the movie did make $1.1 million, almost as much as the original. Uh, So it was a success, which would then lead to yet another sequel next year in 1956. Okay. Currently, you can watch Revenge of the Creature, either by picking it up in the Creature from the Black Lagoon Legacy Collection from Universal Home Video on DVD or Blu-ray, or you can also rent it on Apple Movies or iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days, and the Microsoft Store. Well, folks, I hope you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Revenge of the Creature from 1955, directed by Jack Arnold. See you on the other side.
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Revenge of the Creature from 1955, directed by Jack Arnold. Ben, what did you think of the sequel to The Creature of the Black Lagoon? It's okay. Yeah. It's got its pluses and minuses. I enjoyed scenes, Mm -hmm. but by and large, not in my top ten. I mean, yeah. I mean, Creatures in the Black Lagoon is not in our top ten, so, yeah. It's it's not in my top 20. Yeah. There is a dog. Yes. And it does get got. Yes. The dog does die. Yeah. And Clint Eastwood has his cameo in, like, the first 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah, he's in, like, the second or third scene in the movie, basically. Yeah. And it's fun. Yeah, you'll you'll be able to tell it's him. He has a very distinctive look. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's over and done with quite quickly. Has he ever not had that haircut? I guess not. I Does it count now that he's, like, basically bald? No. Right, okay. Because that's changing his hairstyle uh, not by choice. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. So then, yeah, I think we're just seeing that hairstyle at its most, like, pronounced. (laughs) What I will say about this movie is that the way that it moves the creature from the Black Lagoon story forward does feel natural. This does feel like the natural part two progression, but that's because they, they based the story on King Kong. Um, and that's the way King Kong's story progresses. It's not like, it's not like some of the universal sequels of the forties that were just literally kind of like the same points over and over again of story. Like, Oh, this is Dr. Frankenstein's other, other son. And we're going to go into the ruins of the ruins of the ruins of the castle to find his secret, secret notes. Sure. I do disagree about the idea that it's not just hitting those same notes again and again. I mean, it's hitting some of them, but like... It's hitting the same creature from the Black Lagoon notes. It's not hitting the same, like, Frankenstein notes, (laughs) you know? Well, it does need to kind of be the same thing. I'm just saying that in telling the story, like, it's not like we just went back to the lagoon. Yeah. Right? It's a decent enough idea for the sequel. It's a decent enough concept to base the sequel around. Well, let me tell you what it's about. Yeah, let's go into more detail. Uh, Sorry, I know you just said we don't go back to the Black Lagoon, but spoiler alert, we do go back to the Black Lagoon (laughs) in the beginning. We have Joe Hayes and... An associate of his, whose name I didn't catch and it's not important. Um, they have been sent by the Florida Ocean Harbor Oceanarium. Which is just marine land. Yeah. And it's shot at marine land. And they give a thanks to marine land at the start of the movie. So I don't really know why it's fictionalized. Probably because... Spoiler alert, the creature escapes. Oh yeah, that'd be and bad they're like, publicity. Oh man... Like, to be fair, the creep like... If the a porpoise escaped, it wouldn't be a, such a big deal. Yeah. Or, like, a shark. Or, right. like, something that would be as dangerous as Gilman. Because they don't have legs yeah. like Gilman. <laughs> uh, have you seen Blackfish? No. Have you seen 
um, any of the documentaries about how it's incredibly detrimental to marine wildlife's quality of life to be kept in a tank in a place like marine land? Well, I haven't seen any of the documentaries, but I did see Free Willy as a child, <laughs> which basically has the same message. Mm-hmm. And I also... Live in the world? I went to university and, like, had conversations with people who were really, really concerned about animal rights. So, like, yeah, I, I get the gist. Okay. I just feel like that's good context around anything that depicts marine animals in large tanks. Sure. I have a lot of thoughts about that that we can talk about in the discussion. Yeah. Um... Anyway, so back to the plot synopsis. Joe and his pal are sent by this oceanarium to catch Gilman um, for study, but also entertainment. Right, for study and profit. (laughs) They recap his origin of, like, being an evolutionary dead end. Similar, like, the movie doesn't do this, but I would say similar to, like, the alligator. Yeah. Where, like, but the shark, where, like... This is what peak performance looks like. Right, yeah, exactly. Why would you change this for thousands of years? Exactly. They use dynamite to stun him, and they do it so good that Gilman is in a coma for the entire ride back to Florida, which is convenient. Meanwhile, animal psychologist Professor Cleet Ferguson... I've never heard of someone named Cleet. Cleet reads about this, and he's like... Dope! I've been studying monkeys and cats and rats, and I'm done with this. Let's go see Gilman. <laughs> yeah. So he heads down. Um, another person who's studying him is ichthyologist student Helen Dobson, who is working on her master's degree and is going to be studying Gilman as part of her degree. Uh, and Joe is also there as his keeper. Mm-hmm. The cameo of Clint Eastwood is in Cleet's lab talking about, I, I think this cat ate one of the mice. Oh, wait, it's in my pocket. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, he's like a dumb grad student or something. <laughs> so we get set up a love triangle between Cleet, Helen, and Joe. Mm-hmm. But it's not just a love triangle because Gilman wants in on this action too. And Helen has a dog. <laughs> And Helen has a dog named Chris. Now, Gilman has recovered from his coma once he reaches the oceanarium. Upon waking up, he immediately, like, tries to kill some dudes. Doesn't succeed at this point, but they're like, oh shit, yeah, Gilman's dangerous. So when they put him in his, like, forever tank, for lack of a better word, um, they chain him to the bottom of the tank. Now, there is enough leeway for him to swim around, but not enough for him to actually climb out and start wreaking havoc. Yeah, it's it's like putting your dog on, like, a leash that's tied to, like, the tree in your backyard kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. In studying Gilman, Cleet and Helen are basically, like, trying to teach him consent, actually, um, by offering him some food and then saying, stop, underwater with, like, a speaker. Um, and poking him with an electricity stick, a pain rod from Klingon culture. It's a cattle prod. It's a, it's a totally normal <laughs> cattle prod. That works underwater somehow. I mean, water conducts electricity. 
Yeah, but wouldn't it, like, short itself out, you know? I and don't know. And you'd have to, like, connect it to, like, the battery power. It's I'm not odd. an electrician, okay. so. yeah, whatever. So they poke him when they say stop to, like, be like, no, stop, don't come near the food. Or, no, stop, don't come near, like, this ball that we were training you to play with. And for the most part, Gilman is getting it. Yeah, the idea is that, like, once he learns that stop means no, they don't have to use the prod. Meanwhile, Cleet and Helen are falling in love. Despite Joe being far more attractive than a Michael Keaton-looking Cleet. Oh yeah, the second Sarah pointed out to me that John Agger looked like Michael Keaton, I could not unsee it for like, the rest of the movie. Specifically Michael Keaton in the 1989 Batman, for me. Yeah, like like prime Michael Keaton, like like late 80s Michael Keaton, like not, not today Michael Keaton. Well, I just, you know... Wanted to give a description of who in my mind I'm picturing. It's weird because now we've, we're like two for two on Creature from the Black Lagoon movies having like a weird modern day star doppelganger because Julie Adams in the original was like spitting image young Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought it was good to clarify which Michael Keaton that I'm talking about because I'm not talking about like Beetlejuice Michael Keaton. <laughs> you imagine just a guy in a 50s movie who just looks like Beetlejuice? Oh my god. Now we're at Marine Land, so we get to see, oh look, the dolphins play around and get fish and do tricks, and one of them is named Flippy. Oh, Marine Land. Yeah. Finally, the movie remembers, hey, it's it's a horror movie. They probably had to put all that Marine Land stuff in there to, uh, Grease the wheels of being allowed to shoot at Marine Land. <laughs> sure. Um, and they have Gilman escape. Uh, now, this happens when Helen and Cleet are, you know, doing their training thing. And Gilman says, fuck this, and just grabs Helen and, like, swims away. They get her back. Cleet gets mauled, but he's absolutely fine. No scratches or anything. Which is, like, hilarious, considering the fact that, like, anyone else gets, like pushed aside by Gilman and have, like, scratches all over half their body. Whatever. So they rescue Helen, but Gilman, in the midst of this, has found a way to break the chain. So he manages to get out, killing Joe in the process. So rip Joe. And he escapes to the ocean after turning over a car and rampaging through Marineland. Yeah, the thing is, is that once Marineland has Gilman, um, they have made him their, like, star attraction. There's, like, cardboard standees and, like, huge crowds around Gilman's tank, even as they're, like, training Training him him and stuff. So when he gets out of the tank, like, there's a whole crowd of people that he can start, like, snapping necks and, like, tossing into pools and shit. He doesn't, though. I mean, he tosses a guy into a pool. But he doesn't, like, snap necks. There's a little girl who gets in his way, and he just, like, looks at her and walks the other way. Like, too young, I guess? That's Oof. gross. Um, it's like, how much is Gilman a danger to the average citizen? And let's put a pin in that right. as we come back to the story. Yeah, absolutely. Gilman, as we have said, is what peak performance looks like. Even to the point of tracking down Helen specifically to her hotel. Yeah. Like, you know, must have, like, the nose of a bloodhound. Especially in water? Yes. Like, that doesn't fucking make sense. No. Anyways, so he tracks Helen to her motel. Now, when Gilman 
is approaching the hotel room and comes in. Helen is getting in the shower. You see a lot of skin. I mean, I guess the movie's like, you've also seen her in a bathing suit. It's right. fine. But whatever. So she's going into the shower. I thought we were going to get like a pre-psycho shower scene attack nah. here, but no. Nah. Because that would be exciting, Ben. <sighs> Ouch. <laughs> That's a bit too harsh for this movie. Anyways, Chris the dog is like, fish man, and barks and attacks. Cleet is also staying at the same motel. So he, like, hears the dog barking and, like, howling and barges in. But the dog is nowhere to be seen. Helen didn't hear shit in the fucking shower. Loud shower at this hotel. Yeah. It's, like, prime water pressure at this hotel. Yes. Um, He doesn't mention anything about the dog howling and snarling. He's just just like, like, have you seen Chris? I guess Chris ran away. Oh, well. We see Chris is dead. Yes. In the reeds next to... Yeah, this hotel is near, like, the waterfront. Yeah. Chris is dead. The gill man killed him. Now, this whole time with them falling in love, Cleet's been like, oh, I only have three weeks here, and now tomorrow is the last day that he has. So they're going to go on a romantic cruise. Also, to get Helen's mind off Chris, quote-unquote, running away. And this romantic getaway is to take a boat... And travel from where they are, which is, like, probably around Miami or some shit, and go up to Jacksonville. Uh, So, because they're on the water, Gilman stalks them the whole way. Finally, it's the night. They're out dancing. It's having fun. And finally, Gilman gets the girl. And (laughs) they dive into the water. She's screaming. Cleet dives in after her and can't catch up. So now the police are involved. Police and the Coast Guard are on the watch for where Gilman and this poor girl have been taken. Mm -hmm. These two boys, teen boys, are driving around. And they're complaining about, like, man, to do any kind of work now, you need a college degree. Back in our parents' day, you could get away with just a high school diploma. And it's like, oh, this is, what, 1955? Uh, Just wait, 70 years later. Yeah. And then they see something on the beach. They look, and it's Helen's unconscious body just lying on the beach. And they're like, oh, shit, what's going on? And as they're investigating Helen, the creature, Gilman, comes out, and he just takes one dude and throws him right up against a palm tree. Um, They, like, rigged up wiring, so you see him, like, swing right into the tree. Yeah, he throws him, like, a good, like, ten feet into this tree. Like, it's some Hong Kong, like, action movie (laughs) shit. And then just completely mauls the other guy, picks up Helen, and heads back into the water. Now, the police have been like, oh, shit, there's these two boys um, who are, like, dead. Well, now we know where Gilman has been. So they organize a search party, and it's been made very clear by both the sheriff and Cleet that once you find Gilman... Don't approach him. Just shoot up your flare. Have everyone else gather there, and we'll get Helen away from him. So, again, the cops, they're navigating through the swamps of Jacksonville, and they find Helen on the beach. Because, as they explain, Gilman can only be out of the water for, like, a few minutes at a time. But he has realized, apparently, that Helen needs to be on land, so it's almost like a bit of a Romeo-Juliet situation. <laughs> Basically, he swims with her until it's like, okay, time for Helen to have, like, a, a breaky break. 
sits her down on the shore and then like hangs out in the water until like he's able to get back up on land again and carry her some more on land. It's weird. Yeah. So the cops find Janet's body, uh, unconscious body, and then Gilman comes out and he's like, "Get away from my babe!" So they hit up the flare. The cops and Cleet swarm in, so they're all on the beach, but Gilman isn't attacking them. He's just picking up Helen and walking back towards the water. And finally, Cleet gets there, and he's yelling, Stop, trying to use that training that they had done. And something clicks in Gilman's fish brain that, Oh, stop, okay, I will just stop here, waist deep in the water. Helen wakes up, and so she goes to Cleet, and as soon as she's far away, the cops open fire, and Gilman swims away. And then the last couple of shots are Cleet and Helen holding each other, looking at the water in terror, and then a reused shot from the end of the last movie of Gilman sinking to the bottom of the lagoon. The end. Yeah. So, this movie has some high points, some low points... I think a lot of its flaws come from the fact that we're seeing the weakness of splitting King Kong into two movies, which is that, at least for me, this movie's biggest problem is that the pacing is dire. Yes. Um, The first one did a much better job expanding its half of King Kong to feature length than this movie has. And it creates, like, a lot of pacing issues. The basic idea of, like, capturing Gilman, bringing him to Marineland, trying to train him and study him while people, like, profit off his spectacle, all that's a good idea. And obviously, like, Gilman's going to escape and make off with the girl. Like, that's just the structure of this story. But... In King Kong, because that's, like, the finale of a movie, like, King Kong escapes. He goes on a rampage on his way to find Fay Ray. He gets Fay Ray. He goes to take her somewhere that seems safe to him. And then there's a big finale where we shoot him down, right? And that's all, like, the same night as his premiere. Right. Not over the course of three weeks. Yeah, so the, the need to expand to feature length this part means that like Gilman has to escape rampage and then leave and then track the couple, which is like not only never explained how he's so good at it, but it's also never like addressed even it's never like, how is he following us over miles and miles through like ocean to freshwater and back again? How does he know exactly where we are? Like no one even brings it up. It's just sort of taken as like natural that like, Oh, yeah, here he is. Yeah, instead of going after, like, any girl. Right. Or going after his first love. From the first movie, yeah. If he's if his, like, nose is this good. Um, <laughs> I think a big weakness here, I don't know how much of this is, like, could they not get the original people back? Did they not even try? Because, like, we've seen from the sequels in this era that, like, continuing characters aren't really a huge priority, but I think it really hurts the movie that we have essentially substitute lead characters from the last one. Um, I think this movie would have been a lot stronger if it had been the same two lead characters from the first movie. And I think these particular main characters are poor substitutes for the originals. And some of that is the writing. 
Yes. And some of that is the performance. But regardless, we then have to have Gilman, like, track them, attack them, escape back into the water again. Then they move on to somewhere else. Then he tracks them, attacks them again, moves back into the water again, over and over until he finally is allowed to get her, right? And they try to build tension in the same way that they did in the first one of, like, oh, they're swimming and he's right underneath mm-hmm. in a very copy paste kind of way. Yeah. It's, it's like, this is the coolest sequence in the original. So let's do it again. But the, the thing is, is that it's like, it makes that question of like, how is he tracking them even further underlined? Whereas in the first one, you're stuck in, in his that, house, in his house, you yeah. know, you're in his house. So the tension is already building there, not like, why is he following you? And it's like, I don't know how to explain why this kind of stalking didn't work for me versus other kind of stalking that we've seen, like in The Mummy's Tomb, when Karis comes to America, or even when you see, like, Michael Myers. It's because... To make the Gilman a stalker who's tracking his targets means that his targets have to be really fucking dumb. <laughs> because, like, the thing is, the, the weirdest part of the movie really is, and I'll, I'll get to some of my other complaints about these lead characters in a moment, but, like, once Gilman attacks Helen the first time and breaks out of Marineland, right? If I was a human being, whether I was Helen or Cleet, in that situation, I would go, cool, I'm not going to go anywhere near the water now. Yeah. And then, even if I made that first mistake where it's like, well, all my stuff's at the motel that I was already staying at, so I'll stay my one last night and leave in the morning. Then if Gilman fucking attacked me that night because that motel's on the water, my next thought wouldn't be like, okay, let's get in a boat and go on the river. And then even if I got on the boat and went on the river... My thought wouldn't be, hey, you know, the boat stopped for mechanical failure. Let's go for a swim in the river. And then once Gilman had attacked me while I was in my swim in the river, once I was off the boat, my next thought wouldn't be, well, let's go to a restaurant on a pier by the water. (laughs) I guess, to be fair, they don't know Gilman is stalking them because they're the most dumb dumb people, like the most inobservant people, the most like... Tell her you heard the dog snarling. It's so weird to me that, yeah, their reaction to Chris getting killed by Gilman, and, like, they don't know he's been killed, but, like, they don't even fucking look for him. Like, when Chris goes missing, they're just like, oh, I'm sure he'll turn up. And then when he doesn't turn up and they're on the boat leaving, Cleet's just like, yeah, I'm sure he'll come home eventually or whatever. And it's like, she doesn't live anywhere near... Like, what kind of people, if you were staying at a hotel and your dog went missing, were like... Okay, well, let's still get on the boat the next morning, though, with our dog still missing. Yeah, and it's not like Chris was killed in, like, a secondary location. Yeah, he's, like, on the lawn, like, 30 paces away. And I can understand maybe not seeing him in the dark at night, but by day, by day, someone would have seen the dead dog. Yeah, and the movie just basically tries to paper over this by the fact that we cut from the sight of Chris's dead body to them getting on the boat. So we don't have to, like, address... Like, the morning after at the motel, when the natural time to go find him would have been. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you're right. They don't know he's stalking him. They still know that he's escaped, though. And the reason why I think Gilman stalking them doesn't work is because 
all you need to do, like people joke like, oh, all you need to do to get away from the mummy or Michael Myers is run fast. All you need to do to get away from the gill man is not be right next to water. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And so the fact that they're just so casual and keep going on dates, just like, it's not just that it makes (laughs) them look stupid. It comes back to what I was talking about, which is the pacing problem. King Kong escapes, gets Fay Ray, goes on a rampage, big climax. This movie, because it has to basically make the last, you know, 20 minutes of King Kong into the last 45 minutes of this movie, it means this movie suddenly gets this, like, very start-stop structure where it's like, oh, he's attacking. Oh, never mind. Oh, he's attacking. Oh, never mind. That really, like, kills the momentum. And then the other problem is that because Gilman is limited to the water, it means that his rampage can't really be much. You have to be someone, and I, I know this, I'm getting the feeling this is something you really want to be talking about, but you basically have to be someone who goes to his environment and fucks with his shit for him to be a threat to you because it's not like he's going to go downtown and start wrecking shit up there. And so the climax here is super unsatisfying because instead of King Kong where it's like, okay, well, we know he's going to climb the highest thing because that was his deal back on the island. How are we even going to get up there, though? Oh, my God. Oh, wait, planes. Okay, well, we have to wait for him to put the girl down, and then we're going to swoop in, blah, blah, blah. It's just, well, we're going to follow the water line till we find him, and then we'll get the girl away, which they don't really have to do anything clever to do, right? There's no scheme. Like, it's a neat callback. Yeah, with the stop, I suppose. But, like... But why is it working now? Right. When it didn't work when he was first, like, attacking people. Mm-hmm. It didn't work when he was escaping. Mm-hmm. Like, also, like, I see what you're saying of, like, just stay out of his environment. I will give credit that, like, when he does attack, it is gruesome and violent. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Joe, the dog Chris, or the two kids. Or teens, I should say. Yeah. Um, but any other time, it just feels very contrived. For why someone would be in his space. Yeah. And I absolutely agree that the climax is unsatisfying because as soon as the cops see him, they just have to, like, stand around, give him space, send up a flare for, like, our main protagonist, Cleek, to show up to Mm -hmm. do something. Yeah. And they're just standing there around Gilman. Because all you need to do to defeat Gilman is be on dry land ten feet away with a gun, which is how they do it. Right? They just shoot him. Yes, Gilman is super vicious. But so is, like, a shark. Yeah. Right? If you get up in a shark's face and fuck around with him. So... Like, the reason why Jaws works with the shark being threatening is because they're on the water. Right. Like, if they really wanted to make it feel like a stalkery kind of feeling and not just contrived of being on the water, maybe this should have been set in, like, Venice. Right. I mean, I feel like taking the Gilman to Venice would be more of a contrivance, actually. Gilman in Venice. But I do think the Gilman, like, is a threatening monster. I do think that, you know, the monster can be sympathetic, which I want to talk about in a moment, while still being a monster in a horror movie killing people. And I think that, like, on paper, I see how this makes sense. I think the issue is a pacing thing. Like, if you know, this was the second half of the first movie, and we had the same characters from the original. For one thing, Gilman's, like, 
insistence that it has to be this girl instead of a girl would make a lot more sense. But because he's already transferred his affections from Julie Adams to Lori Nelson, then once she runs away onto the mainland, why not transfer your affections to the next teen girl who comes by water, right? So the motivation kind of weakens and because we have to repeat the attacks over and over again to pad out time, you start asking yourself these questions that you wouldn't need to ask yourself otherwise, right? Yeah. It's not this movie's fault, but where I thought this was going with Gilman being walked up on the bottom of the tank is a Day of the Dead situation where, like, you feel sympathy for this poor creature that is, like, chained, um, and then you're rooting when he escapes and wreaks havoc. Right. I think that the Gilman at Marineland stuff is one of the strongest things in the movie as an idea. Yeah. Because of what you just said. And I think that, yeah, narratively what should have happened is the climax of this movie should have been at Marineland, right? Like, it should have stayed in that space. He should have killed a bunch of people who were in the audience there, killed a bunch of his handlers, then they, you know, closed down Marineland, and they've got, like, all the scientists and fish trainers and everyone trying to, like find out where he is in the park and contain him. And then he's like tracking them down and killing like, you know, maybe each one like Joe Hayes and uh, you know, all these people. And we can set up like, Oh, this one trainer was like particularly mean to him with the cattle prod or something, things like that. Yeah. Right. Because this is the revenge of the creature. There's no revenge in this movie as it stands. Right. Like there's an implied revenge in that they do mistreat him. And then he does go after people. But but... I feel like the movie isn't really characterizing their treatment of him as mean or inhumane. Like, I see it as that, but, like, I don't know if the film itself is purposefully trying to make us see these people like that because they're also still our protagonists. Yeah, well, so that is the, I think, most interesting ambiguity about this movie, right? Is like, we talked a bit when we talked about the first movie about the idea of Gilman as a sympathetic protagonist because these people do come to his lagoon and like fuck up his shit and i pointed out that they would never have fucked up his shit like if he hadn't attacked julie adams like at the end of the day he's still trying to get with you know a member of another species who like (laughs) is way out of like you know like he's he's, she's out of your league buddy (laughs) yeah like he's going out of his way to kind of like attack this person right um, so we we talked about, like, is he really sympathetic in the first movie or not? I think this movie really does move him into the sympathetic category. But I do think that ambiguity is present in that, is the movie doing that on purpose? Like, are we supposed to think that this is mistreatment? Because at the time, in the 1950s, this was just, like, how you trained animals. Yeah. Right? Like, And, like, it, part of that ambiguity comes from seeing them train the dolphins and have them perform. And the question then becomes, like, and I mean, to be fair, this is an actual textual question in the movie. Like, what's the difference between an animal and Gilman and a human, right? Like, where on that spectrum does Gilman lie? Is he intelligent enough and sentient enough that we should be treating him more as human than as animal, right? Like, that's actually a question in the text. It's not answered. And it's not really dealt with. It's posed in a brief scene. It's posed because it's ostensibly the subject of Cleet's research. Yeah, right? that's true. But, I mean, the thing about the marine world stuff with how they treat the regular animals 
you know, you were saying earlier about how like being a captive animal at Marine land or sea world or whatever really sucks for animals. Um, and I'm not disputing that in any way. I'm also betting that like our methodologies for like training animals and treating them in captivity has probably gotten better since 1955. Oh, absolutely. And so how much of what we're seeing of Gilman and going like, Oh, they're mistreating him is 2020 people looking at 1955. Exactly. And how much of it is stuff that the movie's actually trying to do on purpose. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head of like why this movie is odd in 2020. I think the pacing is going to be troublesome no matter what year you're in. Yeah, because the pacing problem is coming from the fact that you've taken one movie and split it into two. Yeah, but I think like the emotional center is in question because of this different time frame thing we've hit on. The only thing that I think points to the idea that making the creature sympathetic is on purpose is the fact that this is a universal movie and universal knows that the sympathetic monster is a trope that works because they invented that trope. Yeah. So the idea that them doing that on purpose isn't like completely outside the bounds of probability. I think Universal sees Gilman as an animal rather than a humanoid. Mm. And I say that because if you think about like, okay, you're training this animal to stop when you say stop. And then it rampages anyways. It's almost like his animalistic nature can't be tamed, so he's just going to go crazy no matter what. So as much as, like, yeah, you can have sympathy for him in the same way that you might have sympathy or pity for a caged dog, that sympathy is still going to evaporate as soon as that caged animal gets let loose and starts attacking people. Right. The thing about it, and the reason why I start to think that this is intentional and that we're supposed to understand that Gilman's sympathetic and just been put in a bad situation. I think we're still supposed to cheer when he gets killed at the end. Like <laughs> what you just said. Yeah, killed in quotation marks. Um, in the sense that like you can be sympathetic and still be the monster, right? And still need to be put down. But I think it's on purpose. And one of the reasons why is because Gilman's behavior, and you hinted at this earlier when you were talking about the plot summary, is completely consistent. Which is to say that... He doesn't kill anyone who doesn't attack him first. He's not out to just wreck and rampage. He's not, like, attacking people to eat them. And once he's out and about, he's not even, like, attacking randos, right? It's not like Gilman's on the rampage. Gilman is hunting for Helen because Gilman wants... To fuck. Yes. Like, of He all... wants little fish babies. Yeah, of all the monsters who scoop up a girl in a white dress and walk away with her, Gilman is the one who most takes the subtext of that into text. They don't say it in any of the movies, but it's the only logical motivation mm -hmm. that he has. And, you know, maybe part of why we don't resolve the is he man or is he animal question is because then we might have to start asking, is this movie about bestiality or not? And we just <laughs> we just don't need the production code on our ass that hard. Absolutely. Um, but he goes after Helen in a straight line. We know that he only attacks you if you kind of get in between him and his girl, or you like get really up in his grill for no reason, or you're you're attacking him already. And I think that ties into the sympathetic thing, right? If he once he got out 
was just rando killing people, that's a, like, mad dog on a rampage. But if he had just left him alone in his black lagoon, he would have been fine just hunting down those birds. Mm-hmm. 100%. I suspect the sympathetic thing is on purpose, but ultimately we're still supposed to side with Helen and Cleet because, you know, they're human beings. Yeah. So, in the context setting, you said, you talked about how they changed the costume. Mm-hmm. They put the big googly eyes on him, mm-hmm. which I'm fine with. You mm-hmm. kind of get used to him. I think the first suit looks better, but you get used to him. And then the second thing they changed is adding the air hole for the dude to not suffocate. Yeah. Um, totally in favor of dude not suffocating. The hole is on the top crown of his head. That is the most stupidest placement for this hose. They should have put it in his gills, because if there's any air escaping, it makes sense for it to come from the gills, not the top of his head. Or if they wanted to do a blowhole sort of thing like dolphins, it should be on his back. I suspect that what they were hoping was you weren't going to notice it at all. Sure. Judging by the way they shoot a lot of the scenes... I suspect the intent was supposed to be always to kind of shoot him from angles where maybe you wouldn't notice that there were a bunch of bubbles coming out the back of his head, but you do. Yeah. I like. I think the reason that why it's on the head instead of the back is because that's where the air holes for the man are. Sure. <laughs> where he's going to breathe. But the gills are by his cheeks. It should have been in the gills. Yeah. But whatever. You know, safety first. I do think that the cinematography here is still good both on land and by sea. (laughs) Um, You know, the first movie has a lot of beautiful underwater photography. I think this movie is just as good in that regard. I think there's very impressive underwater photography here. Like the first movie, it does a really good job of pacing its underwater photography, which is a thing that movies struggle with a lot with underwater photography. Um, I think the directing here is still good. The tension, all of that... Why I think the like the pacing is bad has not much to do with directing or editing and everything to do with script. Yeah. Right? And I think that on a basic story level, this is also fine. Like what William Allen came up with for like a story treatment for this is probably great on paper. Where this movie breaks down is entirely Martin Berkeley, the screenwriter, because not only like on a script level is the pacing bad, as we've described, but the dialogue in this movie is terrible. Oof. Oof. The way that Joe and Cleet are talking about Helen to her face about, like, oh, Joe, don't you steal my cake. Yeah. fuck. Yeah, they're talking about her like she's a piece of meat. And of course, of course, as Cleet and Helen are falling in love, he's like, what do you really want out of life? Do you really want your education? And she's like, I don't know where it will take me. Maybe I need to choose to have a family instead. You don't have to choose, do you, Cleet? Because you're a man. And he's like, yeah, I don't know if that's fair or just what, but it's just the way it is. Yeah, the thing about Cleet is he's one of those 1950s male protagonists who reads a lot like a condescending asshole now because he's an older man who, you know, he's a professor, she's a grad student, right? So he's an older man. At the very least, not... His His grad grad student. student. Fair, yeah. Very much so. Uh, Who's talking to this younger woman and, yeah, has like a bit of a condescending attitude towards her. But, you know, clearly 
was intended at the time to be unobjectionable. Yeah. I'm not saying that no one objected to him then. I'm sure there were people who were like, mm, this guy's an asshole, even then. But the intent would have been like, this is just a normal dude, right? And now Reed's really smarmy and, and assholey. He kind of feels like... So in the first movie, there was this like triangle-ish between Julie Adams' character, her love interest, who was the male lead, and then her boss who was also the male lead's boss. And basically her boss was the guy who was like, I'm going to take your research and put my name on it kind of guy. And Cleet feels like he's a mixture of those two guys sure. together, right? And it's more of a conflict between Cleet, this older intellectual, and Joe, the younger, more physical guy. And we're supposed to be siding with Cleet. But ultimately, like, they're both jockey assholes, yeah. But I kind of like Joe better, at least because he's more on the surface. Like, you know what you're <laughs> getting with him. Whereas, like, Cleet's trying to hide behind, like, well, I'm the good guy because I'm smart. Yeah, he purposefully is like, don't go with Joe. I hear he's a hound dog. Tries to position himself as, like, I'm a nice guy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who thinks you should you belong in the home and should give up your research. Yeah. Um, Helen on her part, is an okay character, but there's just only so much that she's allowed to do. And I think this is one of those movies where you really notice, like, the effect of an actor on a role, because I think Julie Adams did a lot better with the same limitations in the original. Yeah. And I think, overall, the cast in the original was better, because there's a trick to making cardboard characters likable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And these actors don't quite manage it. And like, oh, just the dialogue in this movie about science is just that so wooden 1950s dialogue where scientist characters talk about science in such a way that you can tell that the writer... Doesn't know what science is. Yeah, and doesn't really understand it. But they aren't villains. You know what right. I mean? Like, the science is like, oh, see, like, scientists are people too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're like, there's definitely a dialogue exchange that's like, scientists, like, we just don't make sense, do we? Like, we know stuff about the universe and the galaxy, but, like, we don't know what love is. As <laughs> if, like, scientists are, like, robots, you know? Yeah, yeah. Last thing I want to talk about, Ben. Mm-hmm. Teens. <laughs> They be fucking. They be fucking in cars. They be fucking on boats. Mm -hmm. um, this movie has a lot of teens. And it's, I think, the first time we've had t this many teens in a movie so prominently, like, quote-unquote, put in danger. Yeah. When Gilman is approaching Helen's motel, we get a fake out. We see these two teens making out in a car. And we think the creature's going to come up. But it's just a policeman being like, hey, kids, come on. Move it along. Yeah. And then we see Gilman coming out of the reeds to go to the motel. Then when Helen is kidnapped off the pier, there are two teens who are making out on a boat who hear her screaming and go like, oh, what's that? And then they see Gilman and the girl's like, shit, and screams her head off. And that helps triangulate where Gilman is taking her. Mm. And then lastly, we have the two teens who get murdered, <laughs> get got by Gilman. And they, they they weren't making out, but they were definitely complaining about, like, my dad wants me to go to college. Yeah. So it's clear that they're teens. And I think that's really interesting that it's 1955. We finally have more teens in here because this is when, correct me if I'm wrong, 
uh, it's after World War II that teens or young adults start becoming a bit more of an identifiable age group that is considered like a demographic to target, yeah, right? Yeah, 1950s is the decade that saw the rise of the teen, right? Like, there wasn't really this idea of there being this middle stage between childhood and adulthood before. You were a kid, and then you were an adult. And the idea of, like, teens as this middle ground, like, wasn't a strong part of American culture until after World War II and the move to suburbs and, you know, kids staying at home longer with their parents to go to school longer and things like this. And the other thing that changed was teens as a demographic that had money and nothing to spend it on because instead of having you know okay well when i'm 16 i'm gonna move out and get married and have kids because i've got my ged or whatever and i'm gonna get a you know blue collar job and so now i'm like 18 and i'm making money and spending it on my mortgage and my car and my kid you now have this group of people who are you know working part-time jobs but they're still going to high school or they're still going to university and so they have disposable income that they can spend anywhere and so they're being targeted by marketers and by advertising and turned into this recognizable demographic that we can appeal to and in 1955 we can see that like teens aren't quite the be-all end-all of american culture that they're going to become you know, when they go dancing in this movie, it's not quite rock and roll yet, right? Yeah, it's, it's still, still like, like, like lots of old dudes with like probably way too young girls. <laughs> well, I mean the band and the style of oh, music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like it's still like rhythm and blues, Yeah, right? It's, but like we're seeing the teens existing. Yes. Like this movie is acknowledging that, hey, these this demographic exists. And we've we've seen the, like, teens necking in a car getting threatened by the monster thing before. We've seen it twice. You're right that there's more of them. We haven't quite gotten to the part where we've figured out to make teens the lead characters yet, right? We haven't quite figured out that, like, well, the people who are going to see this movie are those teens making out in the car. Yeah. So maybe we should make the characters them. We haven't gotten there yet. But we are starting to incorporate them more. And I, I absolutely agree with you that it's a fascinating, like, snapshot of this, like, moment of transition. Yeah. Speaking of transition, uh, would you like to transition into ranking? Yeah, let's do it. So, when I started looking, I first went to the first creature of the Black Lagoon, sitting at number 27. Mm-hmm. This movie is not as good as that. No, no, absolutely not. As is kind of typical of many of the sequels that we cover on the show. So then my eyes went down the list and landed at number 51. It came from outer space. So Jack Arnold also directed that. It's from 1953, so sort of contemporary to the time. And I felt like It Came From Outer Space was more successful as a horror movie, all told, and with its pacing, than Revenge of the Creature. So 51 is my ceiling. As I started looking down, I realized, okay, yeah, some of these, you know, we got the houses of Dracula and Frankenstein in, in here. But I would not go below number 55, Night Monster from 1942. That's the one where the dude's in the wheelchair, but mm -hmm. turns out he can walk and the frogs stop croaking whenever he's around. Yeah. So I would not put this below that. Yeah. 
but my ceiling is 51. Okay. So, your ceiling is basically my floor. Oh. Um, so, I also agree this should go below the original. I started looking down, and my eyes spotted the maze at number 38, which is another, like, movie about an amphibious man uh, who is mistreated <laughs> by those around him and misunderstood. <laughs> to be fair, Frog Boy isn't mistreated. He runs the household. Yeah, but, like, those ladies scream at him so hard that he, like, throws himself out of his bedroom window. Okay. So I was divided on whether this was better or worse than that. So I made kind of that my ceiling, like Queen of Spades at 37, the ceiling. This could be better or worse than the maze. Then I started making my way down from there, spotted it came from outer space at 51, uh, noted it for all the same reasons you did, thought this might be better than that. It might be worse, but it's definitely better than House of Dracula, which is right below. Okay. So, if 51's your ceiling and 52's my floor, why don't we put this below It Came From Outer Space and above House of Dracula? Love it. Awesome. So entering the list at the new number 52 is Revenge of the Creature from 1955, directed by Jack Arnold. Is this like the fastest, easiest ranking we've ever had? I think we've had faster and easier, but this is the fastest in a while. Yeah. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, you can reach out over email through screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts if you subscribe to our RSS feed. If you want to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the services that allow that. If you listen to us on a service that doesn't, you can also just help the show out by telling people about it, uh, passing it along to a friend of yours, whether that's from six feet away or on social media. If you have the means, you can also become a patron of the show, like... Lana Corona. Head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to bonus audio. At the $10 level, they get access to bonus writing. And patrons of all levels get access to our special bonus Halloween content, which, as we teased earlier, includes a special bonus episode on HUAC and Hollywood, and a special audio adaptation of The Music of Eric Zahn by H.P. Lovecraft. So, to find all that stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. All right, Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, I kind of gave it away already, but we are watching the B movie of the double feature that this was the A movie of, uh, which is Universal's Cult of the Cobra, which is a universal knockoff of Cat People uh, 14 years after Cat People came out. Sounds like a real winner. If uh, you're listening to this episode soon after it came out, and it's still around Halloween times, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween! But we hope that you stay safe in all of your Halloween activities this year. Um, That's and true. Halloween falls on a full moon, so you you got to be extra careful about the line between the living and the dead being blurred. It's also the fact that there's a pandemic, and you should be practicing social distancing. These are both valid concerns. Yes. 
<laughs> well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night, in November. Bye. Bye.